Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where the events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. And my name is John Keeley. This is the 364th show of ROI. And our guest for today's show is author Linda McCann, who is going to talk to us about her book, POWs in Iowa, 1943-46. to The history book for today's show is Brett Menard. The theme song is Kayla's theme, written and performed by Mark Zapdel. Our producer and engineer is, as always, Mr. Dave Baker. This is the opening segment of the show called History is Local. And today we'll be talking about the book POWs in Iowa, 1943-46, to with author Linda McCain. Linda, what was the inspiration for this book? Well, I grew up north of Waverly, north of Waterloo, and heard all about a POW camp at Waverly. Well, as I got older and picked up more information, I I had it in my mind. I wanted to find out more about that. And it would have been about five years ago I was talking to teenage granddaughters and talking about this POW camp. And the younger one went, what are you talking about, Grandma? You know, didn't know a thing about it. And they go to the Waverly Shell Rock School. And so I'm talking to them, trying to explain it to them, and their other grandma doesn't know anything about it. And as I begin talking to more and more people, I'm realizing there's a whole bunch of history out there that nobody knows anything about. And that's what made me decide it was time to for me to learn about it and share it with others. Okay. So when tackling this uh, subject for your book, where was your starting point? Um, Local libraries? Uh, Did you sit there and uh, talk to individuals, um, state military historians? Where was step one in the process with this book? Well, I, I had run into the POW camps when I wrote my CCC books on the Civilian Conservation Corps because the Eldora CCC camp was used as a POW camp. And so I had picked up a little bit of information then. One of the first places I went was up to Algona. Algona and Clorinda were the two main camps in Iowa. And I didn't know anything about Clorinda when I started. So I went to Algona, which has a museum, has a nativity scene that is wonderful. And that's where I started picking up information. That's where I heard about the branch camps, which what is what Waverly was, was a branch camp. Well, luckily, I was able to talk to the person that lived right next to the camp from Waverly. I'd went to school with his son, so there we go again. And he had been 15 years old when the German POWs arrived and moved in next to his house, you know. And so then it's just little by little, somebody would know somebody and that sort of thing. And, yeah, I just kind of followed the dots. Okay. Okay. Um so I guess I have um, sort of a two-part question. Um, so because basically nobody knows anything about this, can you kind of give us a sense of how many branch camps there were? And then my second question is, or is the the only great way that most of the public understands World War II POW camps is either through movies or – through things like Hogan's Heroes, you know, those, yeah. which, uh-huh. which, 
not, neither of which have worked really hard to be historically accurate, um, right. or at oh. least not accurate to Iowa. So right. sort of tell us where the, the, the branch camps are, so how extensive is this POW camp system, and then talk to us a little bit about what these what the camps were like and what these guys are being asked to do. Okay. Iowa had the two main camps, Clorinda and Algona, and then we had about 19 branch camps pretty much all over the state. The northeast corner did not have any. There were two camps at Clinton, and then it goes over to Waverly and Charles City, and that northeast corner had none. But the rest of the state had 19 of these branch camps. And what it was was a company, a feed corn company, you know, this sort of thing, had to make a contract with the government that they would hire POWs. And feed corn companies were a big thing in Iowa. So it was canning factories and feed corn companies in Iowa that would make this contract. They'd guarantee they would hire POWs, and then the government would work out where they're going to be, where they're going to live, this sort of thing. And um, like I say, in in my area, it was mostly the canning factories, and then they worked on the farms. Um, over down in southern Iowa, it was a lot of the seed corn companies. And around Eldora, it was the hemp factories. And again, I knew nothing about, I knew we grew hemp. I didn't really know why and how important it was. But we had 11 hemp factories in Iowa during World War II. So... Um, the prisoners came from, they were German, Italian, and Japanese. We were the only state that had Japanese POWs. The officers went to Fort Moray, McCoy, Wisconsin, Japanese. The enlisted men were down at Clorinda, and we were the only state that had Japanese POWs. But um, the prisoners would come in. Most of them were so relieved to be here. And they could not believe how well they were treated. They could not believe how well they were fed. Like you said, we don't know World War II. I was just completely shocked. I knew nothing about Europe pretty much starving during World War II. I, talked, I was able to talk with three guys that had been American POWs. They were POWs in Germany. And, you know, all we heard growing up was how they didn't get fed, they were mistreated, this sort of stuff. The guys I talked to said it, they got fed as much as the guards got fed. There was no food for anybody in England, in Europe. And that completely surprised me. So these prisoners come to Iowa especially, and one of them wrote home and said, don't send us any food. We eat more in a day than we eat at eight in a week at home. Wow, that's that's amazing. Yeah. Um, is there, speaking of the uh, prisoners, I mean, one thing I think, even though I agree with Jay, that we really don't understand um, prison camps or World War II, and movies and television shows have done a horrible job. Right. Most Americans do understand that the consequences, if you were taken prisoner on the wrong side, whether it was the Allies in the West or the East, uh, were vastly different. Um, when you were talking about how these prisoners were uh, quite content to be here, is there any record on um, 
uh, any written documentation of them admitting, because the alternative was if you're a prisoner by the Russians, you are not alive. Right. So is there a difference between those two, between the American uh, prisoners and the Soviet prisoners? Oh, definitely. Our government, our military, said we were operating according to the golden rule. That is, we will treat the prisoners as we agreed to treat them when we signed the Geneva Convention. And a lot of people had... A lot of people here in Iowa had problems with that because they were hearing about how family members were treated in Europe, you know. And our our military, our government said, no, we are doing as we agreed to treat them. Now, the biggest probably punishment that some of the prisoners ran into was it was decided the enlisted men had to work if they were asked to. Officers did not have to, but they could. Well, of course, the SS, the Nazis, these sort of ones, they don't want to work. They don't want to help the enemy, that sort of thing. And so it was decided, and according to the Geneva Convention, all they have to be fed is bread and water. So if they would not work, they got bread and water. That was it. And it, in one instance, down at Clorinda, it took over two weeks to convince the Japanese to work. You know, they were doing with the bread and water and standing outdoors in the cold and this sort of thing. But that's the real punishment they got if something like that did not cooperate. Otherwise, they were treated very well. We have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. KALA 88.5 FM, the radio station with the most diversity in the Quad City region. Jazz, blues, R&B, hip-hop, Spanish and Hispanic programming, gospel, new rock, oldies, news, and shows addressing local community issues. And the world's best in entertainment and news from Public Radio International. Here's something different on KALA 88.5 FM, the most diverse radio station in the Quad City region. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where the events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. And my name is John Keeley. This is the second segment of the show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is author Linda McCann, and we're talking about her book, POWs in Iowa. 1943 to 1946. Our history buffer today's show is Brett Menard. Brett, you get the first question. Thanks. So at the end of the last segment, you talked about how um, enlisted POWs could be required to work. What kind of jobs would they do? Well, like I said, it was mostly canning factories and seed corn companies. And down around Clorinda, when I was talking to people, they were telling me what fun it was to try to teach Italian POWs to detassel corn. And the POW, yeah, POWs couldn't figure out why they were doing that, you know. But I, I had all kinds of people tell me, you know, they would come in and make hay. They would come in, even clean out the barns. Whatever the farmer, the canning factories, whatever needed them for, that's what they did. 
Now, myself, I was shocked. Again, I was shocked. I really believe that if we wouldn't have had the POWs helping with this food production, bringing it in from the fields, canning it, I really think that there would have been people starving if we wouldn't have had these POWs. Well, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but but I think in, at the end of your book, you actually put some dollar values on the work that was done. Can you share that? Well, actually, I have to look it up. I don't know it right off. <laughs> you I mean, know I what happened? I was staggered by the yeah I was staggered by the amount of money I mean you know you you just you, you tend to think again because I guess because we never heard of it we, right. we didn't know it was right. going on in the first place you just don't have an appreciation of how big right. a deal it was yeah. um, but well, uh, I'm you, trying you know to... one of them writes that the value of labor down around Clorinda was three point five million dollars. Yeah, and that's nineteen forty-five dollars. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So you know, again, I mean, in Waverly, they worked at a canning factory, so they worked to can the food. A lot of it went to our servicemen. A lot of it stayed local, you know. And we were sending food to England before we actually got in the war in forty-one, because England was short of food. So so here the German prisoners are helping us to feed our people, you know. Okay, so so Linda, my, my next question then would be, you talked about some of the, the farmers and the factory owners were a little bit were a little bit nervous at the start right. of this and, and we can understand why that would be true. Right. Um how did that play out? Did did that nervousness give way uh, over time, did it, you know, did it stay? Was there still an us-against-them kind of situation? Um, you know, how did people deal with the fact that they had these these enemy combatants in their backyards, literally, in some cases? Right. I, like you said, in the beginning, people were very concerned, and the military was very concerned that if somebody got out, they were going to rape and murder their way across the U.S., you know, because we don't have any military to protect anybody. Well, as the Germans especially came in, and, you know, we got to remember how many of our ancestors spoke German. So they come in, they can speak with the Americans. Yes, they very much developed relationships. And, you know, I was very surprised to find out there are still Iowans visiting the grandchildren and great-grandchildren in Germany, you know, their great-grandfather was a POW, and the ones here, theirs were either military or farmers, you know. And there's still relationships going on today. Okay. A uh, question from a more local perspective, of course, in Waverly, is uh, a college, which, of course, our colleague here, our history buff, Mr. Brett Menard, <laughs> is a graduate of, Wartburg. When you have uh, the college, which was college was opened in like the late 1800s, I'm guessing. Right. Mm-hmm. And so here you're going. Uh, Waverly is a college town. I have two nieces that graduated from there, and you have it has a college aura. It has a college feeling. Uh, and then lo and behold, here comes a prisoner camp. Uh, is there articles in the newspaper or other sources to say how this? World War II change 
uh, impacted the uh, attitude of the community? You know, there are uh, there's a lot of articles in all the newspapers where the camps were. But it, at Waverly, they were at a YWCA camp about three miles south of town. So they came into Waverly, they did their work at the canning factory, and they went back. So there was, you know, there was no real interaction. They were in a fenced compound with military guards, and that was one of the things growing up I heard, that if you even drove by the camp, a guard would stop you, ask what you were doing there, and if you had no reason to be there, you weren't to come back. You know, they were on top of people that much. But yet the farmers got to know them, and it got to the point in some areas where they could invite them for Sunday dinner, and they would come without a guard to this farm for Sunday dinner, you know. So it's wow. it's real interesting to see the differences. Yeah, yeah Brett. So you talked about how there were some uh, relationships formed. Did any of these POWs uh, end up settling in Iowa? We had none stayed at the end of the war. All of them had to go back to their country, wherever they were from. Um, supposedly, they're guessing about 20, and this is nationwide, managed to disappear, and that's the word they used. The the POWs were so enthralled, they wanted to stay. They They asked... The guy I talked to that lived next to the camp at Waverly said they came to me and said, if you hide us, we'll work for nothing if you'll keep, let us stay. Well, he couldn't, you know, but they did want to stay. Nationwide, there were about 20 that managed to disappear. But, you know, they thought they were going to be able to bring their families here, their, settle here, and it didn't work out. Most of them turned themselves back in. But about 2,500, again, nationwide, have were able to immigrate and come back to the United States and bring their families. And at least four came back to Iowa. And were they mostly the uh, German POWs, or were there many Japanese POWs that you, ended up coming? Yeah. It, it's all German. I could find nothing on the Japanese. The Clorinda Museum has no Japanese ever um, came back ever contacted anyone they very much were they did the work that was it there was no interaction this sort of thing whereas a lot of the guards at these camps got to know these prisoners got to know their families the you know this sort of thing especially again with the germans but yeah it was all the germans that came back okay um so for me the the, the interesting thing here are are those relationships. Can you talk a little bit about? Can you pick out a relationship that that you have in your book that that really kind of jumped out to you as as sort of representative of how these things worked out? Um, because I think the idea of of, some, of a PO, German POW coming without his without a guard to somebody's Sunday dinner that, that yeah. that's an image that just uh, kind of sticks yeah. with you. Well, yeah. And when now around Waverly, it was not that way. But the southeast corner was very much different. They they did not stay on top of them as much like as they did up here. But yeah, I mean, it got to the point. The farmer supposedly again, I'm getting, 
I'm getting children and grandchildren's stories. You know, there's very few original people I can talk to. But one farmer gave him a horse and told him to ride it back and forth. He would, didn't have to come in and get him, you know. And, um, yeah, it's it's truly just unreal. Now, with all that being said, there were a couple escapes. And, again, they're interesting. The first one was from Algona, and they didn't even know they were missing them until they did a count. And when they did the count, they counted them twice a day. When they did the count, they knew they were missing somebody, and for whatever reason, the guards couldn't figure out who was missing. So it's in the newspaper that there's a, a POW missing, but they don't know who it is. The next paper that comes out says the uh, POW was found at his girlfriend's house. Uh, well, you know, that's yeah. where he belongs. Uh, so I'm up by Algona, and I say to some people, I do not understand how this POW got a girlfriend. Well, an older lady sitting there goes, oh, I can tell you. She goes, the one corner of the POW camp had a great big gully in it. And she says to me, we sat in that gully for hours at a time talking to the POWs. So you think your teenage daughter's at school, do (laughs) you? Right, exactly. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, you know, you always have that image of the uh, daughter following the the, yeah. the bad guy or the bad boy, boy, they're really messing with some bad boys here. Um, yeah, exactly, you know. The second well, escape was from Algona also. Two guys tunneled out of two layers of fencing, partly filled wow. it back in, walked to 15 miles away from Algona. When they got there, they turned themselves into the marshal, and they were back in camp before anybody knew they were missing. The commander of the camp said, I, I'm guessing, what did you, what, blank, 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 you think you were doing? You know? The prisoner supposedly said to him, we told you we could get out if we wanted to. We just didn't want to. <laughs> now, now, that really does re- bring back memories of Hogan's heroes. Yeah, yeah there you go. Yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, you know, from a, a different perspective, uh, I happen to be reading. Um, we always talk about, you know, prisoners of war in different camps um, mm-hmm. about the United States. But Americans don't have a clue how many Americans, when they were fighting in Europe and Japan, uh, they AWOL. They couldn't handle yeah. the fighting. They up and left. They, they literally, in the middle of nowhere, left mm-hmm. battles because it was so intense. Right. So, right. I mean, it kind of feeds into your argument that those prisoners, whether Italian, Japanese, or German, and they saw incredibly savage fighting, right. that this was this was a free pass out of jail to jail. Right. So, I mean, you can't ask for any more. Yeah. Well, one of the prisoners that came back to Iowa wrote about it, and he had been a doctor in Germany. He criticized Hitler. Of course, the the SS is at his house the next day, says to him, you're enlisting or we're killing your family. So, of course, he enlisted. Well, he writes about his experiences, and he says when he was taken prisoner, he was glad. He said it was the happiest day of my life because he knew he was going to live through the war then. And he said 
All he wanted to do was get through the war and get home and be with his family. And he was very happy to work for us and help us get win the war. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, Brett, do you have another question? I do. So um, you said that there were young ladies from the town who would sit for hours (laughs) talking to the POWs. Right, Um, just talking. So were were there any other entertainments available to the POWs other than chatting up the locals or – well, they, every the the branch camps not so much. Clorinda and Algona, the main camps, had their own theater. They showed movies during the week. At times, they would let them go into the into the town, and they could go to the theater. You know, with the, and they would take guards and such. But the Algona camp had a band and gave concerts. The um, USO and the Red Cross brought in instruments for them, brought in books for them, all this sort of stuff. So, again, yeah, they could put in, put on their own entertainment. They had a theater group up at Algona. And, and again, I didn't realize this stuff. Yeah, well, um, it is customary that we give our guests the last word on our show. Linda, why do you think learning about POWs during World War II in Iowa is relevant in today's world? I think the thing I really wanted my grandkids and your grandkids to take away from this is we can treat people right, we can do the right thing, and, and it works out for us. It, we, we do the right thing. That's what we are. Okay. Uh, Brett, you want to give one last quick statement on it? Well, again, it just goes to show how much history there is in relatively out of – what people would consider out-of-the-way places. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. there if people just care to look. Right, exactly. And any of the listeners that are looking for some place to visit, they need to go to Algona. Prisoners built a nativity scene that is still there, and they completely paid for the materials on their wages that they earned themselves. $8,000 in materials were built, Whoa. used to build this thing, and the prisoners completely paid for it with their their tokens, their money they earned. It's still there. People can see it. It's it's wonderful. Get online and look at it, and then plan your a trip up there because it's worth it. Okay. We will come back and we'll wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. This program, the award-winning Relevant or Irrelevant, is heard Friday evenings at 9.30 p.m. Central Time on KALA HD2 or 106.1 FM in the Quad City area. You can listen over the air or anywhere via TuneIn.com. To hear this program and many other archived editions at any time, visit SoundCloud.com. Search for username KALA Radio. There you'll find Relevant or Irrelevant and many other productions produced at the St. Ambrose University Communications Center. (laughs) 
This concludes our 364th show of ROI, relevant or irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zapsapple. My name is Jay Swords. My name is John Keeley. We would like to thank our guest, author Linda McCann, who talked with us about her book, POWs in Iowa, 1943-1946. The history buff for today's show was Brett Menard. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Gozo Pulanala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Good night.